Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Hello and welcome back for another episode of Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And no, I'm not making that up. My guest today, we have outkicked our coverage, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, David Marinus, also a good friend, the author of numerous books on politics and sports. He tends to go back and forth. These include biographies of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, but also Roberto Clemente and one of my all-time favorites, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. David, thank you for joining us. Happy to be with you, John. So you were born in Detroit. Your dad, yes. of course, was a, they're both Michigan, University of Michigan graduates. Um, your dad was editor-in-chief of the Michigan Daily at one point, uh, the esteemed student newspaper. Um, born in Detroit, but you grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, where your dad was the editor-in-chief of that newspaper. Yes. Uh, we moved to Madison in 1957. Um, in the summer, when the Braves were on their way to winning their one and only World Series, so it was a good time to be there. The Packers were still terrible, but three years later, uh, or two years later, Lombardi arrived and the glory years began. Of course, uh, you've often joked in your other interviews that uh, you, that you're the dumb one in the family, which pretty hard to argue with two poachers behind you. But nonetheless, you had a very educated uh, set of siblings. No, it, it's I mean it's inarguable that I was the dumb one in the family with my dad. <laughs> we were the two. Uh, Ink-stained wretches, right? <laughs> uh, my older brother and sister were PhDs who got 1,600 on the SATs <laughs> and became professors. My younger sister was a classical pianist, so and I became a writer, the one thing I knew how to do. But, well, um, stick was, to your strengths, obviously. Your dad must have loved it, though, watching your career rise, I'm sure. He did. Um, and he was it had really, to be. Yeah, he was so important to even – inspiring me to do it. Uh, there was a point, John, and this gets to leadership in a way, when I was about 15 years old and kind of a ne'er-do-well kid, you know, I, I played baseball, didn't study very hard, and I was walking into the newspaper, my dad's paper, the Capital Times, and he introduced me to someone and said, this is my younger son, Dave, he's going to be the best writer of all of us. I don't know why he said it, I had no clue that I was even going to do that, but it planted the seed. Wow. I did not know that story before. We've talked a number of times over the years, of course. Um, what a what a wonderful seed to plant. Yes. It's amazing how, I mean, it, clearly it had a huge impact on you. One throw-off line lasted all of 10 seconds. 
And would you be doing what you're doing the way you're doing it without that line? Hard to say, I guess. Hard to say, but uh, it's not hard to say that my father was um, a writing role model for me and really influenced everything I did from then on. So that part is definitely true. When you began watching your dad's work, what do you notice about the way he worked? And of course, when you got older and began reading his work, um, what were your takeaways? What did you learn from your dad? Well, uh, you know, watching him was was quite an experience, but it, it wasn't something I took away from it. I mean, he was an old hit hunting peck typist, right, banging away really loudly. Um, it was the era when, when newspaper men almost all smoked, and he smoked viceroys. Um, and he sort of had a nervous hum when he was writing. But So I, all of that is imprinted on me, but what stuck with me was reading him because my father, as a writer, had a really wonderful way of writing intelligently but accessibly. Um, and that's that's a really important combination, so that he never wrote down to people, but he was always very clear and easy to understand. I just had a friend of mine, Clark Bunting, on here. Um, he invented Shark Week, but he also ran Discovery Channel for a while, and that was the biggest cable network in the world. And he said, the first thing he learned at Michigan State, a fellow Big Tenor, of course, uh, don't talk down to your audience. They're smarter than you think. <laughs> and almost everyone I admire in this line of work, almost all of them believe that. Um, and clearly your dad did. He was not talking yep. down to them during troubled times, of course. Right. Uh, one of your books, of course, They Marched into Sunlight, describes those years in the 60s quite well in Madison, uh, as well as Vietnam, naturally. But uh, that you must have gotten from growing up in Madison, watching your dad's work. That was clearly a personal experience for you, partly. Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, that book, uh, half the book is about the anti-war uh, experience at the University of Wisconsin, and the other half is a battle in Vietnam. And uh, my father was the city editor and then editor of the newspaper during that whole era. His advice to me was, Dave, you can do whatever you want, but I don't want to see your picture on the front page. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. And look, I mean, you can do whatever you want. It's still a pretty broad world, but I'd rather not have to report on my son in this case. Exactly. <laughs> Well, you had a point there. You go to UW, of course, in Madison, great town, great college. Um, you, of course, start you study journalism right away, I believe, in English and whatnot. Um, then you get some breaks along the way. You end up at the Washington Post. Who were your great newsroom leaders along the way? What did you learn along the way that you've carried with you from those newsrooms? Well, the first uh, lucky break was when I realized I – my wife and I both grew up in Madison. It's an Linda. Idyll yeah, Linda. It's an idyllic town. It's the sort of place that if you don't leave, you'll probably live there forever. <laughs> and I sort of realized, we both realized at one point that we sort of had to leave for a while. So I, I, I was, I took a train out to the East Coast and went to about eight or 10 different newspapers and ended up at the Trenton Times in New Jersey. And unbeknownst to me, the Washington Post had just bought it um, and sent up a, an editor from the Post named Richard Harwood, Dick Harwood, who was a tough old Marine, a brilliant uh, lead-all writer, one of those guys who could write about anything. Um, and he, uh, I told him, you know, I, here's another part of the story. I had some clips from earlier in Madison, but I went to visit my aunt and uncle on Coney Island in New York, 
And I left the clips accidentally at Nathan's famous hot dog stand. <laughs> at Nathan's famous hot dog stand. Yeah. This is now a cliche story. This is hilarious. Yeah, no, in hindsight only. But, but, but this I did is basically, love the hot dog. There you go. But I mean, this is Hemingway in his suitcase, of course, of lost stories. <laughs> to you, this had to be as painful as that was for him. So I told Harwood, I had some clips. I left them at Nathan's famous hot dog stand. But if you hire me, I'll be your best reporter in six months. Wow. I don't know why Where did that come it. from? I don't know. It just came out. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not an egotistical guy, but I just, I, for some reason, I said that. And he liked it. That was like in November. And on Christmas Eve, we were back in Madison. A phone rings on Christmas Eve at 10 o'clock at night. Ho, ho, ho. This is Santa Claus, Dick Harwood. I want to hire you. I can't pay your way out there. You'll get 110 bucks a week. But if you want to do it, come on out. And that was the start. And I went out there. I did. Be, I mean, there was a lot of great reporters there, so I shouldn't say I was the best. But I excelled enough that in two years uh, in at the farm club, they called me up to the big leagues at the Washington Post. I got there in 1977. Ben Bradley was the editor. Um, Bob Woodward was there. Um, soon he became an editor with me. Um, so, you know, it was it was quite a place to be in the late 70s, early 80s. It was, it was the place to be. Let's be honest about that. And I read both Ben Bradley's uh, memoirs as well as Catherine Graham's. It's, uh, it's an amazing – I'm sure you're a part of those. You're in those, of course. Uh, but to back that up, when you had that great line – this, this is New Jersey, Trent, New Jersey. I lived in Princeton for a little while. I also got out of my big tent town, Ann Arbor. You're right. You got you to go away to come back. Yep. Uh, but so you say that kind of thing in Ann Arbor, or even Detroit or Milwaukee. Maybe they don't like it so much. You say that in Trent, New Jersey. I will be your best reporter. <laughs> it's a tough town, man. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. It was, you know, Linda and I, you know, we were a little bit, I wouldn't say sheltered, but coming from Madison to Trent, New Jersey was a culture shock. You know, the, the 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 sort of exterior toughness of the place, the uh, you know the lexicon, the the accents, um, it wasn't it wasn't sort of soft Midwest in any way. Um, so yeah, you're right. I mean, saying that went over better there than it would have in Madison for sure. Would you have dared to say it if you hadn't <laughs> left your clips at Nathan's famous hot dog stand? I probably would have said, let my. I mean, I. I've always sort of believed to let my writing do the speaking for me. So probably not, John. So it might have been, in hindsight, a lucky break. Yeah. It didn't feel like one at the time, I'm sure. I don't know also... whether the clips were any good either. <laughs> 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 I mean, I was, it, it, the clips were mostly, uh, you'll appreciate this, I covered high school football and basketball and student protests. <laughs> right? So, Which is, is your future life, isn't it? Exactly, I mean, this alternation... Yes. Uh, between the two, of course. Uh, has it ever occurred to you, that line you delivered in uh, Dick Harwood's office uh, almost exactly mirrors what your dad said about you to his colleagues when you're 15 years old? Nope. I mean, maybe that maybe I was reprocessing that, but I never thought about it then or I hadn't really thought about it until you just said it. But it, it could very well be true. All right, playing, again, Freudian devil's advocate, et cetera. <laughs> Let's mix, mix our metaphors here. If your dad hadn't said that to you at 15 and it clearly resonated, you still remember it verbatim, yeah. would you have had the wherewithal to say it when you're 23 or so in Dick Harwood's office? Maybe not. Maybe not. I was um, – Because your dad was not I, a braggart either. 
No, and I hadn't proved myself yet, but I, I did what I knew, John, is that I loved newspapers. I loved writing. I was nothing about it intimidated me in any way. And I had had enough flashes of, of, um, sort of the muse hitting me where I just felt when I was writing that something special was going on that I thought I could do it. And of course you could. So you get pulled up to the Washington Post during the heyday. Uh, and it's, I, 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 that's not even fair. I think the Washington Post, for my money right now, and I'm reading them all every day, uh, remains the paper of record. It has, it has become the paper of record, in my opinion, uh, mm-hmm. these days. I think the best one out there. Um, so you get there, of course. You're climbing your way up the ranks. What did you learn from your mentors in uh, D.C.? Well, and or your I, colleagues? Yeah, I would say that, that Dick Harwood was my first mentor, both at the Trenton Times and at the Post. I, I, before I got to the Post... Um, I was the national political writer for the Trenton Times, right, covering the 1976 presidential election. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget this. We were up in New York uh, at the convention. The Trenton Times, because it was owned by the Post, had this little sort of hovel right next to the big Post tent in, in wherever all the writers were. And I was in there writing away my lead story on Jimmy Carter getting the nomination and I think my lead had maybe five or six clauses in it. You know, Jimmy Carter, the peanut, you know, it was way overwritten. And Harvard looks at it and he says, Davey, why don't you try diving off the low board for a while? <laughs> 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 so he, he was blunt, but I mean, he, and that's a good editor. I mean, he really, he taught me how to write uh, with my dad, both of them, how to write clearly straightforwardly, but with a flash as well. Um, well one, of, one of my great Detroit news editors, uh, a publication you're familiar with, thanks to your great book, by the way, uh, Once in a Great City, about Detroit. Um, he said to me, and I quote, too much foreplay, not enough F. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can do so, the math from there, of course. So, yeah. yeah, I got the point. In other words, you're taking too long to get your clothes off in this one. So <laughs> right. five paragraphs is too long to clear your throat. And then um, at the post, um, you know, I, I I worked with so many great writers and and editors there that it's hard to sort of single some out. But um, you know, I started covering Maryland politics, and uh, my first sort of lucky break was there was a governor's race in 1978, and I figured out that the that the candidate who was in fourth place was going to win. Wow. Uh, who was, was, his name was Harry Hughes. Um, and he was to, to sort of disparaged by another candidate as a lost ball in tall grass. And I wrote <laughs> about how uh, people are going to find him on the fairway pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> There's his sports he, metaphor, golf. And he was. Um, and so that sort of started. A, and I covered the uh, Maryland legislature, one unforgettable day, which as a journalist, you'll totally appreciate. In one single day, there were three governors of Maryland because uh, Blair Lee was the acting governor because Marvin Mandel was in prison for corruption. But at three o'clock that afternoon, Harry Hughes was going to be the governor. But between but before three o'clock, the appeals court overturned Mandel's conviction. 
So you had me in the morning, <laughs> Mandela at noon, and he used at three o'clock. And it was a great story. That's a busy news day, David. Yeah. <laughs> Today it's a little crazy, but that one ranks right up there. Uh, you won the Pulitzer Prize in 1993 before your book comes out on Bill Clinton. Yes. It led to the book, of course. Um, what's it like to get that phone call? I have no idea. Uh, when the Pulitzer Committee calls you up, that's got to be a day you cannot forget. Have I ever told you this story before? You have not. It, that's it's, why I'm asking it's, now. Really, <laughs> it's really pretty funny. So it was uh, a Friday. We were in, uh, I was the Southwest Bureau Chief of the Washington Post, living in Austin, Texas. My wife, Linda's parents were visiting us. They're oh, golfers. I played hooky and went off to play golf with my in-laws and Linda and came back to our house. This was still the day of of uh, recorded messages on your phones, your old-fashioned uh, recorders. So I come back and push the, and it says, David, this is Don Graham. Please give me a call. Don Graham was the publisher of the Washington Post. So I was sort of nervous. You know, I thought, well, you know, did they catch me playing hooky or what? You know, what's going on? So I call him and he says, how you doing, Dave? And I, I sort of made up some stuff for about five minutes of, what I was doing, you know, just to try to cover myself. And finally said, well, that's all great, but I just called to tell you you won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Thanks for all your BS excuses in the meantime. <laughs> so, yeah, it was quite a, I mean, yeah, I mean, of course, all prizes are subjective. I understand that, you know, but nonetheless, it was a thrill. And, and you know, I was sort of walking on air. I found out on a Friday because – Newspapers in that era would know ahead of time, but you weren't allowed to tell anybody. So the the official announcement was on the following Monday at three o'clock. So I was sort of walking around, um, you know, with a little extra bounce in my step for four days before I could finally let the world, except for my family, know what had happened. You've got a great knack for great phone calls, by the way. You got the <laughs> call from Dick Harwood on uh, Christmas yeah. Eve. Yeah. Uh, you got a great, you got a new great job in New Jersey. You got a call while your in-laws are there. Hey, look, I'm not a screw up. Honest. <laughs> look, I want to pull a surprise. That's a good weekend right there. Yeah. Uh, pretty cool. So that led to the book, uh, First in This Class. You and I have talked, I've seen you talking publicly as well about Bill Clinton, a complicated figure to say the least. Yes. Yes. Um, and you've always, you, you've stubbornly refused to reduce him to the sound bites that you're often asked for. And I've seen you point out his complexities, the, the strong and the strengths and the weaknesses. Um, and yet I'm going to ask you to size him up more or less uh, piquantly in terms of his uh, strengths and weaknesses in a nutshell, um, what you learned in the process of writing first in this class. Well, with Bill Clinton, I mean, with, with almost all of us, our um, strengths are, are our weaknesses, and our weaknesses are our strengths. That was definitely twice as true with Bill Clinton as anybody I've ever <laughs> And I have to tell you, John, that it was my first book. It was a biography. Um, and as I was finishing it or struggling to finish it, I was struggling because I was thinking, well, after putting in all of this effort to study his life deeply, what do you think? Do you like him or dislike him? What's your final judgment on mm. this politician? And I was really, for a couple of months, beating myself up over that until finally the obvious became obvious, which was that, um, of course, they're both true. There were parts of his life where he was very admirable. You know, when he was a young professor at the University of Arkansas Law School, 
He took under his wing the first wave of black law students who were had no mentors and were many of them were flunking out until Clinton got there and really helped them um, survive in that climate. Um, there are other times where he was manipulative and deceitful, and I didn't like him. They're both him. Um, whenever he was, and I also reached the conclusion that whenever he was down, he would figure his way back up. And whenever he was up, he would get himself <laughs> in trouble again. And I figured this out before Monica Lewinsky, before the impeachment, all of that. You could see the patterns of his life before that. That's uh, a perfect summation, by the way. When he's down, he finds a way up. When he's up, he finds a way down. And it's all of his own doing, for better or for worse. So I recall once hearing you speak on this in public uh, with your audience, and someone said, you know, gosh, it was not for Monica Lewinsky. He would go down as one of the greatest presidents of all time. And you pointed out it wasn't for that. He wouldn't be Bill Clinton. So (laughs) it's it's a non-question, basically. You can't separate the two. There you go. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead here to, uh, they're all great biographies, and I love Clemente also. That was especially good, I thought. But when pride still mattered, why am I showing this on a podcast? I don't know. You've seen it before, and my audience is audio only. So there's a brilliant media guy for you right there. Yeah, hope your audience appreciates cool. that. Right. Uh, but anyway, uh, when pride still mattered, interesting title, of course, which has a story behind it, um, A Life of Vince Lombardi by David Marinus. Um Lombardi also is a lot more complicated than people give him credit for. And I think you did a wonderful job of restoring him to his full humanity, uh, all his complexity as well. Uh, Right down to the one quote he's too often remembered for, which even he regretted. Um, It was taken out of context, I think. We'll Mm -hmm. dive into that. Um, Winning is not everything. It's the only thing. And you've got a story behind that, as well as other stories that make him out to be a much more admirable, I think, leader than he's largely given credit for. Well, he, he was uh, definitely obsessed with winning. And in professional sports, you have to win or you don't have a job, basically. Right, you better uh, but, be. But winning was not the only thing with him. And, you know, I interviewed almost all of the old Packers who played for them, for him, uh, you know, in total almost 400 interviews for that book. And so many of those old Packers said, you know, he was so much harder on us when we won and played poorly than if we played our best but lost anyway. So it was the striving to for excellence that was the most important part for Vince Lombardi. That phrase, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, was not coined by Lombardi. And I had a lot of fun sort of tracing it to its derivation, which was a B-movie called Trouble Along the Way, starring John Wayne and Donna Reed. And John Wayne was a ne'er-do-well sort of alcoholic football coach at a small Catholic school in New York City. And he was bringing in a lot of ringers um, to help him uh, build a better team. And he was also a widower who had a teenage sort of tomboy daughter um, who would hang out with him at pool halls. And so Donna Reed, a social worker, um, was worried about that relationship and befriended the little girl. And they were at a game, and Donna Reed was talking about how there's something strange going on with that team and all of the older players on it. And the girl turns to her and says, well, don't you know winning isn't everything? It's the only thing. And that's where it came from. And the screenwriter from that learned it from another football coach, um, from uh, Red Sanders, 
uh, who had been the coach at UCLA, and he's the one who coined it originally. In the 30s, I think, as I recall. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> so I, I love the etymology of that. I had no idea of the history. And Lombardi himself objected to it. I mean, he believes in that to a point, as you point out. <clears throat> but he said, basically, he wished he'd never said it. Um, and that... Um, and that's not what he believes. I mean, he believed in sportsmanship. He believed in playing fair. Um, his players, as you point out in the book, his line was, you will dress like the most successful businessman in our town. So coats and ties, the whole bit. They And this, this is commercial flights back then, no charter yeah. flights, of course. You are <laughs> you are mixing with the milieu, the likes of us. Um, that was all very important to him. And he's clearly loved his players beyond their success in the field. You know, John, I think for, for your audience, the most important I mean, there's a lot of things to learn from Vince Lombardi. Um, but one of them is so many, uh, there are a lot of coaches who are wannabe Lombardis, but they don't get the other half of the equation. You know, his players would could say, you know, I hated him on a daily basis, but I loved the guy all the time. You know, he, he gave them both. He drove them very hard. He had very high expectations. Um, but he also um, made it clear that he cared about them more than anything else. And that's the important part of coaching that, that a lot of sort of Martinet Lomb coaches who think they're Lombardis don't quite get. The other aspect of Lombardi that I think is important to understand is there was a phrase by one of his defensive linemen, the great Henry Jordan, who said, he treated us all alike, like dogs. It wasn't. It's funny, but it wasn't even close to being the truth. Lombardi was a master psychologist. He understood exactly what buttons to push with each one of his players. With Bart Starr, his quarterback, very sensitive. Lombardi snapped at him once in front of the in front of the uh, team, and Starr said, "You can't do that to me if you want me to be a leader." Lombardi never did it again. Um, Paul Horning, his playboy um, halfback, and Max McGee, the playboy end, were loosey-goosey, easygoing guys. Lombardi would scream at them, and they didn't even care, you know. But he knew that Horning would come through for him, you know, at, at crucial times of every game, as would Max. But he he, he treated each of the players um, to the way that he thought he could get the best out of them. It wasn't like they were all treated like dogs at all. He was he was a master psychologist. No question about it. And I stole a lot of things from him that I ended up using myself when I coached my little high school hockey team. All right. Uh, the Anna River Rats. Um, <laughs> so we went from worst to first in about three years, despite being the worst player in school history. And I can prove that one, David. That's not, that is not false modesty. I've got numbers behind it. Uh, but a few things. <laughs> How do you prove a negative? <laughs> uh, oh, very simple. The most games in here in uniform, 86, with the fewest goals, zero. Oh. And David, and David, I played forward. So you can't, you, you can't play in more games. And you can't score fewer goals. Well, that's that the coach's fault, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would learn that later. <laughs> I was too dumb at 17 to blame the coach, unfortunately. But uh, anyway, uh, I got a lot of things from this that, that stayed with me and imprinted me in ways I didn't even expect when I became a coach. One is that you mentioned that he kick them when they're up. That's one of Bo's phrases. You kick them when they're up, yep. not when they're down. Bo being yep. Bo Schimbeckler, and you're nice enough to endorse that book. Um that's what smart leaders do. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, and Bo learned a lot from Lombardi directly. He went to Green Bay and he talked to Lombardi more than once. 
Um, and that's you focus on behaviors and not results. Um, your behaviors are control and the ball and boy, Bo point out, damn it, Bacon, the damn ball is pointy. No one can predict <laughs> what's going to happen next. Good players lose, you know, bad teams win happens yeah. all the time. Uh, which is why Lombardi's genius is if you play, if you win, but play poorly, that's when he's going to get on you. I recall in your book, of course, Forrest Gregg, a uh, great player naturally, was couldn't couldn't settle down on the flight home from, I think, San Francisco because they won. They won by a lot, but he knew damn well the film was going to show <laughs> that he had three or four missed plays, and, and he couldn't settle down based on that. So that's a genius motivator. That's one huge thing I got out of that. The Bart Starr uh, incident you mentioned. Uh, Bo came up to when he's coaching at Miami of Ohio, just on his way up. Oh. Went to Green Bay, and Lombardi was nice enough to take him in. And while they're sitting there talking in the hallway, Bart Starr comes up to Lombardi with his playbook and says, uh, Coach, I think we ought to run this play this way next time. And Lombardi says, Thank you, Bart, for that. I'll take it under advisement, and we'll talk about that tonight. And Bo is gobsmacked because he had the same image of Lombardi that everyone else had, this tyrant uh-huh. and the dictator, which only goes so far. And at dinner that night, at the team dinner, Lombardi says to Bo, I know you're dying to ask me about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've quoted him in my speeches since uh-huh. then. I said, Bart Starr is an all-pro. We've won a couple titles. He's not a nobody. Uh, he comes up to me with an idea. He probably has a very good idea. And if I don't listen to that idea, I will get no more ideas from Bart Starr. If I do listen mm-hmm. to it, it's probably a good idea. Even if the idea is no better than the idea that we had, it's probably going to work because Bart will make sure it works. And I thought that was genius. And Bo had the same idea, and I did that too with my players. If they came to me with an idea for changing the lines, it was all about the same. I'd do it because uh-huh. they would make sure it worked. If you pitch your editor on a good idea, the, a smart editor says yes because you're excited about the idea. So Lombardi was far more open-minded than people think he was. And the African-American players especially, I recall this from your book, in a troublesome time in the 60s, naturally, they said he was the fairest man I ever, ever played for. They yeah, said that, that was – Willie Wood said that, Willie Davis, uh, Dave Robinson, they all, they all believed that. Um, and, you know, he, it wasn't just what he would say but what he would do. When he arrived in Green Bay, one of the first things he did was go to the – innumerable taverns in that uh, town and said, if I hear you discriminating against any of my players, you're off limits for all of them, which was a key thing. He also understood that in Green Bay, the uh, social uh, aspects of life there were not conducive to African-Americans. And so he let the, those guys go down to Milwaukee for to get their hair cut and to get you know more comfortable. Um, when they needed to. Um, when they traveled in the South, he would put them up in the earliest days before the 1964 Accommodations Act. He put them up at places like Fort Benning or a military installation rather than have the, the uh, black players have to go to a separate hotel. Um, so, you know, he was it was his actions as much as his words. Um, Lionel Aldridge, one of his uh, players, uh, married a white woman. And there was a lot of hostility about that in that era. You know, so many of these things are hard to believe today. But, but in any case, Lombardi stood up for him completely when there was a lot of pressure um, against Lionel for doing that. Um, so, you know, in every possible way, um, Lombardi was was a man of, of equality. And, and there's one other aspect, John, that I'm sure you were going to ask me about, which 
is even more sort of progressive, which had to do with um, sex, sexuality. Lombardi had a brother who was gay. And, you know, even today, the NFL is, well, sports in general is pretty far behind the country in terms of dealing Mm -hmm. with those issues. Lombardi was ahead of his time. Um, So that, uh, especially when he got to Washington with the uh, Washington football team, I won't say the old name, one of their fullbacks was gay. One of their tight ends was gay. A couple of their administrators were gay. And Lombardi made it clear to everybody that if he heard anything disparaging about that, they were off the team. So, you, you know, he, he was very strong on all of those types of things. And I have to say, too, you can certainly say self-interest to some degree with African-Americans and so on, but so what? He's still way ahead of his time, especially in Green Bay in the 1960s, and he got there in late 50s, early 60s. Um, and the players never forgot it, of course. And then Washington, he is way ahead of his time. And that's not the only measure, of course, but he put their humanity first. And I recall mm-hmm. one bit of advice I got from you years ago, and that is you can always be sympathetic to your to your subjects and when we write about them. In other words, try to find their full humanity. And that's even with people we don't like that we write about. And you've written about a few, a few of those people, of course, in your 1960 Rome book and so on. Avery Brundage comes to mind. Uh, but that's what uh, Lombardi did in a true sense. He found their humanity and he focused on that. And that's where he made his connection, not on the superficial level, but heart to heart. Yep, that's absolutely right. So other things we can add, I know your time is tight, um, from Clemente, of course, that's a fantastic book. Your latest book is A Path Lit by Lightning, uh, about Jim Thorpe, of course, lovely book, won a ton of awards and selling like crazy, and what great reviews you've gotten as well. Um, these tend to be passions of yours that you carry around for a while, and I recall you saying <laughs> somewhere that you have to be obsessed before you dive into a book, and that obsession pays off, I think. So Colonels uh, from Clemente or... Um, or your Barack Obama book, or uh, Jim Thorpe? Well, something interesting happened just a couple of weeks ago, uh, John, in terms of Clemente. I got a, um, a, a email from a, a Facebook friend that I don't even know. You know, or I should say I know him via Facebook, right? And he said, David, we're having this little event uh, in Northern Virginia next week, and we'd love for you to come. And so I went there, and it included the Coast Guard officer who was on duty the night of Clemente's plane crash. Who's now in Puerto Rico? In Puerto Rico, who I couldn't find when I was doing the book. I mean, I got everything I needed, but I didn't find this guy because his name was never mentioned. Um, Ninety years old, he was there. Um, the the biggest uh, Clemente memorabilia collector in the country was there, and a woman who I write about in the book, who as a as a young oh, teenager yes. in Philadelphia was befriended by Clemente, and then would see him all the time and was invited down to San Juan and was literally arriving there the night of Clemente's death. She was she was hosting this event, so um, you know. Uh, and all of them sort of were bonded by my book. And so, um, you know, that's one of the w- wonderful things about what we do is that you can make, connect other people in ways that, that, that hadn't been connected before. Um, so that, that was pretty interesting with, with Clemente. 
Um, what a wonderful story, by the way. She was basically a surrogate daughter, essentially, yes, to the family. Yes, exactly. I think she's about 10 or 12 when they first met. Yeah, um, and she described how over these decades until Vera died a few years ago. Vera being Vera, his wife. Yeah, whenever Clemente's widow came to the U.S., she would stay with with Carol, you know, this woman. Uh, so, you know, just amazing stuff. Um, uh, great stuff there, of course. I love it. Um, and in Thorpe, the, uh, I would say... Um, Probably the most meaningful part of the Jim Thorpe process for me is the way that the Native American community has adopted the book. Um, you know, I've spoken at at the Oneida Reservation in Wisconsin. I've spoken uh, on panel. Uh, I've had moderators who are Native American activists around the country, including the head of the uh, uh, Museum of, of American Indians in New York, I mean, in D.C., um, and they've all sort of thanked me for writing this book. So um, that's been meaningful as well. In all your work, though, the <clears throat> one of the big themes runs throughout, and that is restoring their full humanity. It's so easy after years, especially. These people tend to become two-dimensional caricatures of themselves, mm -hmm. and trying to bring them fully back to life is really one of your main, I think maybe perhaps the main thing that you do. It's, would, it's wonderful. Would, well, He's complicated. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, all of my, all the characters I've written about in various ways are complicated figures. Um, Thorpe certainly was, um, you know, a brilliant athlete. Um, arguably I've had a couple of, of debates uh, online and else and in person with, uh, with Jeff, uh, uh, the author of the Bo Jackson book, um, Perlman, and yeah. uh, you know, over who's the best athlete of all time, uh, Bo Jackson or Jim Thorpe. I mean, you can put Jim Brown in there too, and a few others, right? Um, but in any case, I win the debate every time, and you should, <laughs> by the way. And I know Jeff, we follow each other on Twitter and so on. I'm sure you admire his work over the years, but you are correct. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not, it's not just, of course, football and baseball. It's also the Olympics, the decathlon, yeah. which in itself should end the debate, I think. <laughs> so anyway. Um, oh, good stuff. Uh, any, the final question I love asking my guests, by the yeah. way, is who was your favorite teacher? My favorite teacher, I had two, and they were both history teachers. One was in high school, uh, Miss Kohler, um, who just, uh, I don't even know what her politics were, and that didn't matter. She just loved history, and she infused that, um, making history come alive again to me. And so the, she was the first one. And because I was terrible in math, I particularly <laughs> appreciate the fact that I could do okay in history. The second was at the University of Wisconsin, a great um, intellectual historian, a German uh, refugee named George Mossy, um, for whom the Humanities Building in Wisconsin is named. His lectures were spellbinding. His understanding of nationalism and its dangers, um, based on his own experience, mm -hmm. resonated in the 60s, resonates today in so many ways. And so he was also a major influence. Uh, he, of course, if he's a German refugee, he already lived it, so yes. he's seen it up. He's seen it firsthand. I've asked that question, by the way, from Vancouver to Sao Paulo in my speeches. I asked it by accident in 05, and I'm so glad I did. Um, everybody in the world, David, can come up with that answer in about three seconds. Uh -huh. uh, in English, Portuguese, or Espanol, makes no difference. <laughs> um, I already know the answer to the question, but I'll ask it anyway. I'm guessing that Miss Collar 
and uh, Professor Mossy were not easy. Am I correct? Uh, certainly not. <laughs> but uh, no, they were they were they were very tough teachers. Um, but I was, as I said, I, I loved history, so I did okay. <laughs> uh, but they also, but they were passionate about it. They're passionate yes. about you, I'm sure. They'll yeah. talk to you after class. The great teachers, it always boils down to, I've seen no commonalities, David, amongst the subject, the grade. I've heard kindergarten through graduate school, mm -hmm. race, gender, et cetera, uh, ethnicity. None of that seems to figure in at all, of course. Um, but they always have two things in common. They care for me so much, they expected more. Yep. Uh, that happens every time. So that describes Lombardi, describes Branch Rickey to some degree, I would say, who brought up Jackie, or uh, brought up, um, well, Jackie Robinson, of course, but also Roberto Clemente. Um, great stuff. Uh, any final thoughts here well, on the would... topic of leadership? <laughs> Big one. Oh, yeah, the topic of leadership. Uh, yeah, everybody should read your book. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> I almost spit up my tea on that one, David. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I mean, yes, David's right. I mean, I, I'm not um, – I think there's a lot of books that pretend they're about leadership and they aren't really – um, and yours really is. So, I mean, I think there's a difference, you know, that sort of, uh, and, and I think that leaders have to be flexible, um, and adapt to the times and to the people they're dealing with and to new ideas. And so you can't get stuck on one sort of set way of leading. And for all the talk of Lombardi and Bo in that regard, they both did. Yeah. Um, and my, the one irrefutable law I found in coaching is you have to know your people yes. in leadership. Um, your editor has got to know you. When do I give Marinus more rope in this story? When do I give him more time? It depends on how well you know your people. John, um, you know, that, that, that gave me goosebumps because in my book about my father, he was the commander of an all-black unit in World War II. And the chapter of one of my books is taken from a letter he wrote to my mother that says, know your people. I've read that book. We've interviewed you for it at the National Writer Series in Traverse City. Yes. Uh, that was your dad at his absolute best. Yes. And he got some grief for that, just for the mere act of leading this unit, um, much as Lombardi got grief for defending his African-American players. Yes. And he did it anyway. Uh, your dad, I know, is a complicated guy also. <laughs> uh, but I will not forget um, seeing you at the Washington Hog um, Cemetery and mm. how much where he's interred. Um, and how much he clearly still meant to you all these years later. That uh, That's a moment I will not forget. Well, thank so. you for taking me out there. It was a snowy day, as I remember it. It was a snowy day, and I didn't mean to make, make the private public, of course, but, but no, I always forget these things are recorded, David. <laughs> <laughs> that's the damn problem. Right. Uh, how wonderful. But, yes, know your people, and that is – if there's one takeaway here tonight, that's it. Yep. Whether you're Lombardi or Bill Clinton or – uh, Mr. Marinus himself, of course, whose great first name was Ace. Uh, <laughs> you, you may have two Pulitzer Prizes, but no one's ever called you Ace. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so cannot thank you enough, David, so much for being on our podcast here. Really appreciate your time. John, I love talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. I Best of Linda, of course. Okay. You got it. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Please tell your friends, leave a review, and subscribe to our podcast. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. Thank you, and see you next time. 
You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. Please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead.